This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And welcome on into this week's edition of the MLB Pipeline Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Schusterman, joined as always by Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo. And Jim, you are back in Arizona. Has it cooled down anymore uh, since you, you last were there? It seems like a little bit. I am full of barbecue. I just ate a bunch of barbecue with some gouts. So I am enjoying life on a Arizona Fall League off day here in uh, Arizona. Amazing. Uh, and Jonathan, how are you? Uh, no longer in Arizona? I am back in Pittsburgh and the sun is shining, although it rained a lot this morning just to sort of welcome me back to what is the typical fall climate for my neck of the woods. There you go. Well, uh, Jim, I do hope you enjoy the the warmth uh, while you have it there. Just a few weeks left, or I guess a week, a little over a week left down in the fall league. So we're going to get to some folly stuff at the end. But since it is World Series week, the World Series is beginning between the Nationals and the Astros. We wanted to take a little bit of a look back at some of these stars on these teams and what they were as prospects, kind of what they were before they were, you know, on national TV and hitting home runs in major league games. Uh, and so, Jim, you uh, have an article on LB Pipeline coming up about you know some of these players which of these guys were the top prospects who was appearing at the top of a prospect list so i know you ranked them so who who was number one uh, on your list and i mean it's, it's kind of an obvious pick even though there are a lot of good good prospects in this game so who was number one uh, on this list of the world series players as prospects well i don't know if it was obvious because there's kind of interesting twist to it but there are there are 24 players in the world series who are on mlb or mlb pipeline top 100 prospect lists at some point in their careers. There are actually three more guys who, when I was at Baseball America, who never made MLB lists. So more than half these guys were, were top 100 guys at one point or another. And the, the way we, we base the article is not based on the careers they had, but, but simply put, their, their prospect sizzle at the time they made their big league debut. And, you know, it's interesting because number one on the list is Steven Strasburg, who was famously, he was definitely the best pitching prospect in draft history, he was the most hyped prospect in draft history, although I think he was surpassed the following year by Bryce Harper, who, who obviously also went number one overall to the Nationals. You know, Strasburg drafted in 2009, was in the big leagues a year later. So he, he's number one on the list. But the funny thing is, he was not the consensus number one prospect in baseball while he was in the minor leagues. And I, I will throw this out to both of you. So this would have been 2010 before he made his debut who is the consensus number one prospect in baseball on both the MLB list that Jonathan did, the Baseball America list I was part of, and, and I even looked at Keith Law's ESPN list. He had this, we all had the same guy at number one. In 2010? In 2000, going into the 2010 season. Oh, man. Jonathan, do you have the answer? Jason Hayward. It was Jason Hayward. Oh, I was going to guess pro far, but I guess that would have been a little early. Yeah, you would have been a little bit early on that. But yeah, so so Strasburg, to me, is the clear number one. He had the most sizzle on this list of, of anybody in the World Series as a prospect before he got to the big leagues. But he was never the consensus number one prospect in baseball, which I did not remember. I, I would have thought Strasburg was number one. That caught me by surprise uh, a little bit when I saw that. 
Yeah, but obviously he was a legendary college performer. Still kind of funny to think back that he was at San Diego State of all places when, you know, so, so many of the top guys are, are at these huge SEC schools. Uh, Jonathan, do you have any uh, memories of just hearing about Strasburg, this legendary uh, college pitcher during around draft time? The stories, obviously, of why he ended up at San Diego State have been told often, you know, just in terms of him not really being a huge recruit out of high school and being out of shape and all those things. And then he was throwing 100 miles an hour. I had to sort of lie, beg, cheat, and steal my way out to San Diego to see him before the draft. Even though at that point, everyone knew he was the number one guy, but he went out there and I saw his last regular season start ever where he promptly threw a no-hitter against the Air Force, which wasn't very good that year. But still, I'd actually never seen a no-hitter in person. I still haven't other than that. So that was fun. As an aside, my in to being able to go is that my uncle, actually my wife's uncle, was his professor for several classes. So I got to sit in in a class with with Steven Strasberg, who, by the way, went back and finished his degree. There you go. You're one up in your excellent Howie Kendrick stories from last week. That is a nice little nice little plug there. We could talk about all these guys forever, but let's move to the next guy. Was it Correa or was it Bregman uh, that you have at number two? I think you could argue it either way, but I, I had Correa two, Bregman three. You know, I think Correa had had a little bit more time to build up sizzle. You know, Bregman was in the big leagues roughly a year after he got drafted. Number two overall, Cray was number one overall pick. And what I remember from Cray in 2015, if I'm remembering this correct, in 2014, I think was the year he got hurt and missed most of the season. Yes, I believe that's correct. And then he came out in 2015 and was just unbelievable in the minor leagues. He was just unstoppable. You know, the question was, I mean, kind of like with Bregman too, is that both those guys could have been called up even earlier than they were. So, you know, very similar. I mean, obviously both played the same position in the minors. I think looking at them in the minors, you know, Correa projected to have more power, whereas Bregman might have been a little bit more hit over power. Obviously, the Astros hit big on, on both of those guys. Yeah, and Jonathan, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I remember Correa went 1-1, and it's not like he wasn't you know, a top 10 draft prospect. But it felt like at the time, it was almost more safe than who they could have taken at the time. So did it become apparent pretty quickly, like, oh, wait, no, this dude also does have an insanely high ceiling. This is not exactly a safe pick. It was a sort of combination of a we're going to save money pick, but also he's really, really good. You know, they also signed Lance McCullers Jr. and Rio Ruiz in that draft. Ruiz was traded in McCullers before he got hurt. You know, it was part of their rotation. Yeah, at the time, Cray was very good. We knew he was going to go pretty high, like top 10, but we didn't realize he was going to go 1-1. And you know, what we found out kind of after the fact is that he just blew them away in, in workouts, not just in terms of how he performed, but personality. They realized he's a guy who could lead, you know, things of that nature. So it, it was that that combination of of those two factors that, you know, sort of led to that. And he, he went out and showed pretty quickly that he was going to be as good, if not better, you know, than, than advertised, you know, so in terms of prospect status, I, I think I probably would put Correa ahead of Bregman. But one of the things with Bregman is like, we almost didn't have time to rank him. 2015, his draft year, he finished the year at number 21, which is pretty high for a draftee. That was one thing. And then he was, you know, in the big leagues by the next July and graduated off the list before the end of the year. He wasn't on lists for all that long. And I always felt like, you know, every once in a while there are guys like him that move so quickly, almost feel like 
You don't have the, the time to rank them where they, they probably belong. And of course, hindsight, 2020, he was the number two pick in that draft and Dansby Swanson went number one and well, Swanson, you know, was kind of right of the ship and looks like a solid big leaguer, but it's clear that, you know, that Bregman, at least to date, has, has been much better. You know, going back to Correa for a second, he might have had the most legendary series of workouts that I can remember in my years covering the draft because he really made a late push. And that was the year that was the first year of the new bonus pool system and teams weren't, you know, were figuring out how to approach it. My understanding at the time was that the Astros wanted Mark Appel, who they wound up taking number one overall in 2013, and they could not pin him down on what it was going to take to sign him because, you know, he had Scott Boris as a representative. Scott Boris was somewhat determined to blow up the new system and was convinced somebody was going to you know, pay Mark Appel a lot of money after he slid and they give up draft picks and, and it didn't work out that way. And after the Astros couldn't come to terms with Appel, they talked to Correa. And the thing at the time was Correa was going to go six to the Cubs or seven to the Padres. So they were they offered him $4.8 million, which was, was well below slot. And he turned it down. So then they actually turned their attention to Byron Buxton, who would wind up going number two overall to the Twins. And while they were getting ready to do that, Correa called him back and accepted the offer. What I found out later, the Twins told me, was that had Buxton gone number one, Correa would have gone number two. The Twins would have taken Correa at number two. And then there was another time I was talking to the Cubs about this, where I was having a conversation with Jason McLeod. He was one of their, their player development scouting executives. And this was probably like 2015 or 16. I made the comment that you know, geez, you know, the Astros, you know, had they taken Chris Bryant with the number one overall pick in 2013, could have had Correa and Bryant on the on the left side of their infield. And Jason said, well, we thought we were going to wind up getting that because the Cubs had a pre-draft deal done with Correa and then thought for sure he was getting to six to the point that I guess Theo Epstein was down on the field talking to the media about other stuff before Cubs game. And now when Correa went one, Jason and Jed Hoyer had to go grab Theo Epstein so they could figure out real quick who they were going to pick at six. Unlike in Moneyball, where, where Billy Bean threw a chair through a wall, theoretically. Theo took it a lot better than Billy Bean did when he didn't get good draft news. And Theo's comment was, well, the silver lining in this is we know what the what a workout from a first ballot Hall of Famer looks like. You talk to anybody who worked him out before the draft, and he worked out for a number of teams, and Carlos Correa's workouts were just off the charts. Wow, that is that is a great anecdote. Of course, uh, Cubs ended up taking Albert Almora, who has been a, a solid big leaguer for them, but obviously not quite Correa's uh, level. But I would say the thing that I was thinking about Correa is he, he still struggled to stay on the field uh, for a full season. And I feel like we still haven't seen like the peak Carlos Correa. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited to see what that is. He's only 25. I mean, he just turned 25. Yeah, he's he's been. It's crazy. That this is the 2012 draft. That's that's so. It feels like it was more recent than that. But uh, yeah, Correa has has I guess been around for for quite a long time. The one one more thing on Bregman before we move to one one other uh, guy in this World Series that I want to ask about as a prospect is that like he's put himself in the MVP conversation. He's you mentioned oh it was Bregman more hit over power than Correa. Well, Bregman's the one that hit 40 home runs this year. I mean, how much of a coin flip did it seem at draft time between Dansby Swanson and? Alex Bregman like was there a good chance that, that Bregman was going to go one how much do we do we remember yeah, I don't think there was any talk of Bregman going one I'm not I'm not saying that that all 30 teams would have taken Swanson over Bregman because I think the Astros would have taken Bregman over Swanson but I think the majority of teams had Swanson over Bregman and there was literally no talk at the time that Bregman was going number one there were you know, the outlandish rumors like, what if they go super cheap and try to save a bunch of money that 
Tyler Stevenson might go number one. There was that talk for a little while, Jonathan. You remember that? Oh, my goodness. All the current fall leaguer, Tyler Stevenson. Yeah, exactly. But um, I don't remember anybody ever suggesting that Bregman was going to go number one. I never heard that from the Diamondbacks. I never heard that from Bregman's advisors. I never heard that from anybody else. Now, you know, of course, in retrospect, hindsight, 2020, et cetera, et cetera, that he was not uh, more obviously number one. And, and he's on record basically saying he wears number two because he went number two and not number one. So there's one thing we know about Alex Bregman. He's very, very confident in himself. So, uh, Jonathan, I wanted to go back to something you said, you're talking about Bregman and how it, it felt like because he was a draft guy who who you know got to the big so quickly, you felt like you never had the time to properly rank him. Now, that is somewhat common with college guys that move really quickly to the big leagues, but it is not very common with international signees usually because you have plenty of time to evaluate and watch their development in the minor leagues. However, Juan Soto completely bucked that trend, got to the big leagues at 19, and is now you know batting cleanup for a World Series team. So how did this all happen so quickly? Because Juan Soto is one of the more remarkable stories we've had in baseball over the last couple of years. He was only in AA for like oh, two weeks, but talk to him when he was still in the minors in that, that brief stint. He had like one at bat in double A. He was there for 10 minutes and I talked to him. It was actually you know one of those, it's better to be lucky than good kind of deals. He got moved up to Harrisburg and I was in Philadelphia for something. And I was going to Harrisburg because New Hampshire was visiting. And I had talked to Bo Bichette and Kevin Biggio and I needed to go back to Harrisburg to get some Father's Day specific things, which I hadn't asked the first time around. And so I think he got promoted to double A a couple of days prior and he was gone almost as quickly, right? He only played eight games there total. And then he got called up to the big leagues. I just remember one, he hit the ball really hard. Uh, I know that's shocking, uh, but even, you know, sometimes he goes, see a player, you get lucky, you're going to see a player and then he doesn't do anything. He showed immediately why he was so good. And the thing that really stood out is that, so he was 19, he may have not even been 19 yet when I talked to him. Maybe he was, he was 18, turning 21 in a couple of days. And uh, he insisted on doing the interview in English because he wanted to continue to practice his English, which was already very good. So that was impressive, not to mention the fact that his numbers in the minors were kind of ridiculous from a lack of strikeout and walk standpoint. That's kind of continued. You know, in, in the big leagues, he's got a, what, a over 400 on-base percentage in the big leagues. It was over 430 in the minors. So, you know, looking back now, it's like, oh, yeah, now I get why he moved up quickly. But it was so fast that we blinked. And another guy that we didn't really get to rank – for very long cause of how quickly he he moved up the ladder. Yeah, and it is it is really remarkable just looking at his minor league stats because he he only played 122 minor league games. So he was injured a ton in 2017 and I, you mentioned that that he wanted to do his interview and apparently he spent basically the whole time while he was injured trying to learn English because he knew like I'm going to be in the big league soon cuz I'm amazing. So I should make sure that I'm ready to <laughs> to answer questions in English and it is it is just a truly uh, insane story. He's already played in in more than double the number of major league games than he has than he did in the minor leagues and he's still just 20 years old. It wasn't that long ago that he was briefly a prospect, but do you have any uh, Juan Soto thoughts or, or memories? Yeah, I, I was going to say he was he was a guy who, I'm not going to tell you exactly where he's ranked in my story. I'm going to make people read it, but he doesn't rank as high as you think because he wasn't acclaimed as a you know super, super elite prospect because he was so meteoric. And 
you know, the beginning of his career unfolded exactly how the Nationals expected. I mean, they gave him what was then a franchise record bonus for an international guy, $1.5 million in 2015, makes his pro debut. He comes to the U.S. for his pro debut in 2016, and he wins the MVP award in, in the Gulf Coast League. You know, he's already well ahead of the game, doing great, but then he broke his ankle the next year, and he only played in 32 games. And, and he tore it up. I mean, he was hitting 360 in low Class A when he got hurt with more walks and strikeouts and hitting for power. And he got hurt, so he kind of had this lost season where he had, I think, 111 at-bats at age 18. And we were actually pretty aggressive. I had a scout told me going in 2017 that he thought Juan Soto was going to be better than Victor Robles, which at the time was quite the bold statement because Soto had barely played. And going into 2018, we were aggressive. We ranked him 29th on the MLB Pipeline Top 100 going into the season, even though he, he didn't even have 100 at-bats at the full season level yet. And that was first year – we started making in-season adjustments. So we moved him up to 16th in May, which is, I think, about the time he got to Harrisburg for a week. And then time we, we adjusted him again, he was already in the big leagues. And we adjusted him up to number three, but that was after he tore up the big leagues immediately, too. It was just, I can't remember a guy who had such a meteoric rise. And because he was an international guy, so he hadn't been on the high school showcase circuit, he hadn't been college guy, I don't think he wasn't as recognizable. And that 2018 it just seemed to come out of nowhere. Yeah, and I, I remember really well right when he was really like blowing up in, in 18, or I guess in 17, even before he got hurt, it was like people were like, oh, is he better than Victor Robles? And that it was so insane at the time because Robles has been such this huge prospect over the last couple of years. But now it's like, yeah, you'd obviously take Juan Soto. And Victor Robles is really good. Uh, but I still think you take Juan Soto. Can you guys, last thing on Soto before we move to some following stuff, he could be in his, his junior year uh, in the 2020 draft. He would have, what, what kind of numbers would he be putting up? Uh, in the SEC, I mean, you can't even imagine. You can't even. I don't know. Would he could, could he carry Tennessee to the top of the the SEC? Uh, that's 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 the real question. We're, can't pitch. He can't pitch. That's true. Right. If he could pitch, maybe he would. You know, you never know. If he you know grown up here, and uh, you know, maybe he'd do both. He's got a good arm. I wouldn't put it past Juan Soto to 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 be an above average Division One pitcher. I really would not put that past him at this point. Uh, anyway, he is a delight. He is one of my favorite players, uh, and it is it is a pleasure to watch him uh, play. Uh, all right, Jim. Since you are uh, Arizona Jim on this podcast for I guess maybe the final time, we'll see about next week. Uh, we do want to squeeze in some more fall league stuff and talk about one guy before we send it to some interviews, uh, and that is the current fall league home run leader, Mister Greg Dykeman, who is a a whole five home runs, I believe, over. Over second place, uh, which is tied between Adolfo with the White Sox, Joey Bart with the Giants, who's now hurt, Nolan Jones with the Indians, and J.J. Matajevic with the Astros. But Dykeman is up to nine homers on the season. Uh, and Jonathan, did you see uh, a Dykeman home run in person? I know J- Jim and I got to when we were down there. I don't think I did, actually. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like a Joe Adele doesn't hit for me. Uh, although that got that got better a little bit on this go-round. But I did see some very, very good at-bats from, from Greg Dykeman. Um, and kind of showing people why he was an intriguing draft prospect, but he's just been one who hasn't been able to, to stay healthy. There's still considerable swing and miss um, that he's going to have to overcome, but considering he's missed so much time and has struggled when he's been on the field in the minors, that this has got to be, if nothing else, a, a very large confidence boost for, for a guy who, you know, when he played in 80 games this year, and that was, you know, a lot more than the 58 he played during his first full season. So if he's healthy, the power, I think, was going to show up. Right. And I will also mention, uh, before I send it to you, Jim, 
11 homers in those 80 games in double a and already nine in what 20 games if 20 games <laughs> so far uh in the fall league and do you guys know the last player to hit double digit home runs in the arizona fall league not brandon wood is it no I, no it's not brandon wood i think brandon wood holds the the record oh uh yeah he does greg bird no Ooh, that's another good guess what year was it 2011 chip cannon no Oh, that's a great guess. I'm diving deep into the AFL MVPs who didn't live up to potential category. Okay, wait, what team? I think this guy might have been an MVP as well who didn't live up to his potential. Okay, so he but he made the big leagues, but you're telling me he was a disappointing major league player. Maybe he still is a disappointing. Extremely disappointing. Uh, I don't I don't know, Jim, enlighten us. Mike Olt. Wow. Oh. You know, I don't think he won the MVP because I guess Nolan Arenado won it in 2011. But Mike Holt hit 13 home runs in 2011. He had a very good fall league, 1197 OPS. I'm looking it up right now. He was part of that that uh, that that Rangers farm system that was like just completely ridiculously loaded. He was one of those guys, right? He was like with Profar. It was like, oh, and then we got Mike Holt also. And I was like, well, okay, see what happens there. Uh, wow, Michael. All right. Good blast from the past there. Right, well, I guess that's not really fair to Greg Dykeman. We're not, we're not trying to say this is a bad thing for Greg Dykeman to maybe hit double digit home runs in the fall league. Um, but, uh, but yeah, okay. Okay. That's, that's why. So, but no, he's, he's interesting. He obviously had a huge junior season, uh, at LSU. So it's not like the power is, is uh, fluky, but he's just gotta, just gotta stay healthy and, uh, cut down on the strikeouts. Uh, all right. So before we get out of here, I guess, uh, we'll let Jim, uh, tease a couple of the interviews that we're going to be hearing, uh, at the end of the show. We, we mentioned Ashton Goudeau, I believe on last week's podcast, talking about how he was the least prospecty prospect in the Arizona fall league because of his background. So I assume we'll hear from that him and, and Luke Rayleigh, who I believe is a, a division two legend, Luke Rayleigh of Lake Erie college. Uh, so Jim, you want to, do you want to preface these interviews before we, we send it to them with anything? Yeah. Without still too much of the thunder, uh, you know, Luke Rayleigh, your player of the week. And then he went out and had five RBI in, in the game that night after I interviewed him, but he did play at Lake Erie, which is also the alma mater of Ryan Rua. And Luke, I asked, we were talking about that. And Luke said that, uh, his older brother played with Ryan Rua at Lake Erie, and that's how he got to know the Lake Erie program. And he, he's a guy who had a severe ankle injury that cost him all but a month in AAA this year. And he's had trouble getting his timing back, but he, he's been on fire the last three or four games. I think he had two homers on Saturday with Jonathan Mayo in attendance. You know, a, a Jonathan Mayo favorite. I think we've, we've this may be the third podcast in a row where we've talked about him. We, he, he's definitely been mentioned three podcasts in a row, but last week we really gave him the whole rundown. If you, you go back and listen to last week's episode. He is, as Shane Baz said, a tall drink of water. He, he's very tall. He's pitched 13 innings without allowing a run. And no other pitcher has done that this fall. But, you know, it's first season with the Rockies. And he said he chose the Rockies when he was a minor league free agent because he thought they could kind of help him maximize his potential. And they certainly have. He's having the best year of his career. And he missed half the year with a hand injury. He broke a bone in his hand, and he said he hit it on the dugout. So I was like, well, what do you mean you hit on the dugout? Were you, like, was it inadvertent? Were you punching something? And he said they were actually having a conversation about hitters, and he was just, like, gesturing like a guy's swing and, like, clipped, like, the wall in the dugout with his hand and didn't think anything of it and went out and pitched three more innings and then found out the next day he had a broken hand, which cost him part of the season. Oh, that is so unfortunate. <laughs> uh, very interesting, and then making the most of their time in the Arizona Fall League. And – and they were last night's win, um, which, you know, Rayleigh hit a big home run in the ninth inning. Goudeau did not pitch. Clinched a berth in championship game. So they will meet the surprise Saguaros 
in the championship game. All right. Well, uh, I hope you guys uh, enjoy those interviews with Luke Rayley, uh, the prospect in the in the Brian Dozier trade, uh, who went from the Dodgers to the Twins now in the Twins organization. Um, but yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you both uh, for hopping on the podcast. As always, for Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo, I'm your host, Jordan Schusterman, and enjoy these interviews with Ashton Goudeau and Luke Rayley. Talk to you guys next week. So Ashton, you're uh, AFL Pitcher of the Week, and I think to this point, You've pitched more innings than anybody in the league who hasn't allowed a run. And at the same time, you're pitching in relief after starting during the season. What have you what have you made of your AFL experience so far? I've, I've honestly just been trying to have fun. I've uh, been trying to get to know as many people as I can here and just enjoy the experience. And, uh, you know, when I get the chance to go out there and pitch, I just try to do the best I can and just have fun with it. And you had a, a very successful season this year, although you missed, I think, roughly half the season or 40% of the season. What was it, a hand injury? What, it what a, happened? It bro- broken fifth metacarpal, yeah. I, it hit my hand on the edge of the, edge, edge of the dugout. And, uh, you know, we didn't really think anything of it until it kind of like blew up the next morning. We all kind of knew what happened. It was all discolored and everything. But, yeah, missed, missed half the season with a broken hand. So did you just bump it, or was it like yeah, a... Yeah, we were having a conversation in the dugout talking about hitters and just made like a swinging motion. and just Ah, jeez. Yeah, caught, caught the end of the dugout. And it's, I ended up, that was happening in the third inning of one of my outings, so I pitched three more innings with a broken hand. So <laughs> we didn't think anything of it until the next day. So. But then how frustrating was it when you found out, found out that you'd broken your hand? Because, I mean, you were having, to this point, you know, you're the best season of your professional career when that happened. Right, yeah, it, it was definitely frustrating, and we were, we were in a playoff hunt a little bit at the time, so that was that was a more frustrating part, just kind of getting knocked out of that point. But, um, you know, thankfully, I healed ball and was able to come back, you know, in August and get built up for the following what um what spurred you to sign with the with the Rockies when you were a minor league free agent last offseason? Where did you have multiple offers, or what was it about the Rockies? Uh, that when, when the Rockies called, uh, just how, just how they talked about how they like to develop players and like their pitching uh, really interests me. It seemed like a really good family to join, and uh, you know I, I think uh, like how the coaches work. You know I thought it was good for me and my family did as well. So that was that was like a big part of the decision. Is there anything specific they do that kind of resonated with you? Because, I mean, whatever, uh, yeah, what was different for you this year? I mean, you had a ton of success in double A this uh, year. It was, it was kind of crazy. So when I showed up to the Rockies, uh, uh, there was a, one of our whole pitching coordinators for the Royals, who's now a pitching coach here, Steve Merriman. Okay. And I was able to go through the season with him. <clears throat> My first season was in 2013. So I got to have a chance to meet back up with him now that I'm older. And just a lot, a lot more things we talked about made sense. And it was just... It all kind of lined up this year and had a good, really good year. Do you feel like your stuff's any better this year, or is it the same that it has been? I think it's the same, just more learning how to use it, uh, learning how to sequence hitters, and just like learning like what I need to throw in certain situations to get the result. And I think just sticking with that is what makes it up. Yeah, it seemed like your strikeout rate was up, your walk rate was down. Are you are you mainly fastball curve? Is that fastball curveball change? Yeah, we got rid of the slider this year. We kind of kind of made that decision early in the year to get rid of it. It was kind of like the week, it was like the week four that you tried to go with like the strong three. So that's what helped you. Have you used to change it much out here pitching in relief? Or uh, yeah, when I can, I primarily spend mostly fastball curveball. But you know, when I when I get a chance to throw changeups, you know, that was a pitch that helped me get a lot of outs during the season as well. So I've also tried to use it here. What um what do you think of pitching in relief? I mean, I, I would assume they're probably going to put you back in the rotation yeah. uh, next year based on how you perform, but yeah. you've excelled down here too. Yeah, I don't, I don't mind it. You know, it's all it's all kind of the same to me. Just like whenever the coach gives the ball, I just try to go out there and get out and have fun. They make the most of it. 
What have you thought of the competition in this league? How's it compared to the guys you saw in Double A? Uh, it's it's a lot it's a lot more stiff, but it's a lot of fun too because you know like it's, it's it's fun to see how you rank up against like you know baseball's like next biggest names. And it's, it's just a lot of fun competing against these guys. Who's the best hitter you faced out here? Do you think? Obviously, you know, this the primary goal of this league is to develop players and get them ready for the big leagues, but you guys are on the verge of clinching the division title and playing for a championship. What would it mean like what would it mean to, to play in the championship game and, and possibly win a championship while you're down here? It's a ton of fun, you know, just we, we did miss out on the chance in double this year, so to be able to come to the fall league win a championship, you know, special uh, you're the Arizona Fall League hitter of the week for the fifth week of the season. Two home run game, I think, on Saturday night. You know, starting to hit the ball out here. How frustrating was the start of the season to you? I mean, to come back from injury and start slow, has it been kind of difficult to get back and back on track out here? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I missed a lot of time, and it was definitely an adjustment and treading a lot of water to, you know, stay positive and know that I can hit and, you know, it'll turn around and it's starting to. Well, you were off to a really good start this year, AAA, right? And you hurt your ankle. What exactly happened? How did you get hurt? I dislocated. I was sliding a second dislocated tendon in my ankle, so I had to get surgery to get it sutured back into place, basically. So, and so, and you missed like pretty much the last like eighty percent of the season or whatever. Yeah. Had you seen much live pitching before you got here? I played, I think, five GCL games. And that was about it. <laughs> that was about it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, do you feel now, like now that this fall league season is winding down and you, you've had some, you know, you've gotten some at-bats here that you're kind of back in your rhythm where you want to be? Um, I'm getting closer. I wouldn't say I'm back where I want to be, but it's definitely getting closer. So there's definitely, I can see progress being made. That's it. I mean, how nice was the two-home run game? I mean, that's a pretty tangible sign of progress. So yeah. Like, okay, I'm, I'm getting back to where I, where I was. Because, I mean, you were... You were hitting the ball really well in AAA, too. And, I mean, obviously it's your first full season with the new organization. I'm sure you were kind of hoping to you know, make an impression and, and you get hurt like that. Right. Yeah, it was – I mean, the two-home run game was really nice. You know, that felt like a weight off my shoulders, you know. Um, other than that, it's been, you know, a lot of a lot of early work and stuff like that to try to get my swing back, my timing back. And I think that's been the biggest thing is just getting my timing back. Um recognizing pitches stuff like that so it's it's nice to feel that it's turning around and as for you know with the new organization um yeah you want to go out and impress and you know show that they made a good trade getting you and stuff like that so it's frustrating getting hurt but it is what it is you got to live with it and try to move on how much did the trade catch you off guard last year were you have any inkling um, something like that might happen i mean i did at the beginning it just so happened that it happened like with 15 minutes left before the trade <laughs> deadline, so it did kind of catch me off guard. Um, we made a big trade with Machado and sent a lot of guys to the Orioles. So, you know, after that had come and gone, I kind of thought that I was probably safe. And yeah. Just didn't turn out that way. <laughs> On deadline day, when you're a minor leaguer and you know you're in an organization that's trying to win, so they might trade prospects, are you kind of keeping an eye on the trade deadline and what's going on that day? Uh, you know, I guess because it probably happens... Well, were you at the park when it happened? I mean, I guess the deadline's... I was walking to the park. Oh, okay. Yeah, you definitely keep an eye on it. Not yeah. just for yourself, but, you know, your teammates could go. People that you know that you've played with could go. It's just something that, you know, I, I would be shocked to hear that if someone doesn't keep up with it. Right. What, um, you know, obviously your situation's a little different than most players here where you miss most of the season, but 
in, a, in addition to making up for lost at bats, did the twins have specific things they wanted you to work on or, or try to look at, or was it just get out here and face some live pitching for the first time in a while? Yeah, no. I, from what I was told, it was more just get out here, see some live pitching, get ready for spring training, make sure the ankle feels comfortable, stuff like that. In terms of, you know, you played, you know, a little bit over a month in AAA, well, what do you think you need to work on to get to the big leagues? I mean, what, what's on your to-do list, your personal to-do list? I, just consistency. I think, um, you know, I show signs of really good at-bats and really good power. I just need to be able to do it more consistent. When you went to college, I mean, obviously as a Division II school, it wasn't like, you know, a big-time program necessarily. Did you have pro ball in the back of your mind? I mean, did you feel like... It might, it might be difficult to get spotted at a place like that, or, or what, what was your mindset going to college? Yeah, I mean, um, I would have liked to go into a bigger <laughs> school. It just didn't work out that way. I loved where I went. I loved Lake Erie. I think it put me in uh, the right situation to get drafted. Um, yeah, pro ball, pro ball was always in my mind. You Did know, you think was it was that realistic, I mean, necessarily? or It's hard to say. Yeah. I mean, real... In my own mind, I, I always think that I can do it. Right. You know? So, it's, yes, it felt realistic, but going to a Division II school, I knew that I was, you know, playing behind the eight ball. Right. Know, it was, was going to be tough. And um, I had a good summer season. That's really where I got noticed, and it kind of blew up from there. What summer league were you in? I was in the uh, Northwoods League. Okay, yeah. Which, yeah, it's funny. I feel like the Northwoods League gets, I don't know if it's overlooked. I mean, people know about it, but, like, you, you, the Cape Cod League is obviously the best league. And I think the Northwoods League might be number two. And I don't right. think people realize how good the league is because they play more games. I think you only, I mean, what do you get, like a day or two off? I mean, they try to mimic the minor league. Like, it's almost like half of a minor league season Correct. type of deal. And, and there's so many guys that come out of that league. And just talking to guys, they, they've said that, like, it kind of prepared them for the minor league lifestyle a little bit just because of the constant, you know, playing up there. Yeah, constant playing and traveling. Um, yeah, it definitely sets you up for the knowing what a minor league season's like and what pro ball is like. Um, as for, like, the talent in the Northwoods, you know, I played in the Cape for a month. I didn't really play too much, but yeah. I was there. And were you a temp? Um, no, I wasn't at the. I came at the end of the year. So oh, gotcha, gotcha. Um, watching the talent in the Cape in the Northwoods is very similar. Yeah, no, I was gonna say like I don't think the Northwoods people. I know people in baseball like scouts know, but I don't think fans realize. I think everybody's heard of the Cape Cod League right. and don't realize. Yeah. Who'd you play for up in the Cape? Uh, Lake Shore. I'm, Lake Shore Shinos. No, I mean in, in the Cape when you. Oh, were in the Cape, I was on uh, board. Okay. So, yeah, because I know they, like, sometimes it's bring players in at the end of the season because right. it's, like, constant. It's kind of like the fall league. You guys coming and going. Right. Who's the best pitcher you've seen out here? Um, Lynch from the the Royals is very good. Good lefty. Yep. Tough at bat. Um, they also threw uh, Sharp last night. He's yeah. really good movement on his ball. So, yeah, those guys are both very good. And you guys, I think, like, it, we were trying to look at the tiebreakers tonight, so I don't know if you guys technically clinch with a win tonight, but you all but clinch, so they have to look at there. there's a bunch of tiebreakers involved. I mean, how much, I mean, I know development's kind of the name of the game down here, but how much would, you know, playing for and, and winning a Arizona Fall League Championship mean if you got that opportunity? Yeah, it'd be awesome. It's just something you can put under your belt, and it's, it's a cool experience, and to come out with, you know, the, you know, the best players in minor league baseball and to be put on a team and go win it would be really cool. Okay, thanks a lot, Luke. Yeah. No.